0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our newest policy paper, Accelerating Fifth Generation Airpower: Bringing Capability and Capacity to the Merge. I think as most of you all know, today the United States faces a fighter aircraft modernization crisis that left unchecked will undermine every facet of joint force operations. The challenge is particularly acute in the United States Air Force. Its fighter force has been cut by more than half since the end of the Cold War due to Department of Defense funding the Army and the Navy more than the Air Force for over the past 30 years. Now, given the current threat environment, an undercapitalized and geriatric Air Force puts U.S. defense in an untenable situation. The larger issue is viable joint force power projection. And that relies on what Air Force fighters uniquely bring to the table. The F-35 is crucial for restoring capability and capacity, if bought in the proper quantities, to the Air Force's fighter force, which is now the smallest and the oldest in its entire history. Now to discuss our new policy paper, We have two of the three authors with us today lieutenant general gus Costella, former deputy chief of staff for operations and the mitchell institute senior fellow and mr doug berkey mitchell institute's executive director now eric gunsinger the former f-35 program manager for flight simulation test and evaluation is unable to be here with us today but we thank him for his invaluable contribution to the project And we have a real treat for you because I'm pleased to welcome General Cobra Harigian, who recently retired from the Air Force and last served as the Commander of US Air Forces in Europe and Africa and Commander Allied Air Command. And he was on the job when Russia invaded Ukraine, which affords some incredible insights. Cobra's a combat-proven leader who served in numerous positions, including Director of the F-35 Integration Office. He just joined Lockheed Martin but for the purposes of today we're engaging with him to focus on his air command perspective so welcome all uh let's begin with an overview of the paper by its authors so over to you gentlemen
1: I think I'll kick things off with the first slide titled a collision course you know if everyone can envision two freight trains coming at each other. One freight train represents the demands on air power, the US Air Force coming from around the globe. Demands that come from the Middle East, demands that come from Homeland Defense, demands that come from an aggressive China out in the Pacific, and also the demands from the first war in Europe that we've had in decades. All of those global demands are, are real, they're increasing, and that train is picking up speed. So coming the other direction is what General Deptula mentioned, which is a geriatric, rapidly declining, uh, relevant fighter force. We have hemorrhaged 50% of our fighter force structure in the last 30 years. The average age, 41, 38, 32 years respectively, even the new strike eagles are 30 years old. And do we have a plan to fix it? Well, no. The Air Force is currently retiring 800 fighters over the fight up. We're only buying 345 so the collision that will happen is the demand of the globe it's not going away and the inadequacy of the air force's fighter force structure is going to create a significant problem if this is not addressed and so we're glad to share this report with you slide and so why air force why do fighters matter well you know maybe obvious to some but it, it like general deptula said they underpin the key combatant command functions around the world. They are the most versatile part of of the combat air forces, of the joint force, because they provide deterrence to deter bad actors, but they also provide that war-winning power, the ability to strike the vast majority of targets, air targets and surface targets in any campaign. They're quick to get there, and they're flexible. And the missions are are critical for, for the nation. Air superiority, that's something that is top on the list, something that oftentimes our nation takes for granted, because we haven't really been tested in that area in a long time. We also strike targets. That's what fighters do. They strike targets deep. They strike targets close in, They do close air support, something we have done a lot of recently in, in the Middle East, but a lot of the other mission sets we haven't gotten after. So who else flies fighters? Well, yes, the Navy and the Marine Corps have fighters, but remember, their number one mission is to take care of Navy and Marine missions first, only when they have excess air power do they offer it to the Joint Force Commander to apply to the joint campaign. So you have the Air Force covering the vast, vast majority of the mission sets in the air campaign. And when you have an aging fleet, when you have a geriatric fleet, when you have a fleet that's too small, that's uh, insufficient, we're gonna have a big problem going forward.
2: Now, sorry, please. Thanks. So, you know, to understand today's Air Force, you need to look to the early 1970s. Lessons learned from the air war over Vietnam drove the service to develop a whole new range of fighters, A-10, the F-15, the F-16, and added to it, we were seeing severe losses against Soviet-built air defense systems. I mean, consider that in linebacker two, the Air Force lost 15 B-52s in 12 days. A few months later, during the Yom Kippur War, the Israeli Air Force lost 102 aircraft out of 390 in less than a month. So that drove the Air Force to innovate stealth to boost survivability. And we saw this pay off dramatically in Desert Storm. On the opening night, 20 F 117s attacked 28 separate targets in some of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. And they all came back safe and headed out again the next night. And this really highlighted the efficiency and effectiveness empowered by survivability and precision strikes. And so, you, know, you compare that to the opening night with the F-117 numbers to what we saw with non-stealth types, where it took 41 aircraft to attack one target, you know, eight dropped bombs. The rest tried to keep the force package alive. So by the end of the war, F-117s had flown 2% of sorties, but hit 40% of the targets. And that's exactly why the Air Force is determined to replace its fourth-generation fighters with a new stealthy information-dominant set of aircraft in the form of the F-22 and f 35 but the problem is we never realized that goal, you know, and there are a lot of reasons for it, but it's largely budget driven, but the Air Force only bought 187 F-22s, a fraction of the requirement, and that 35s have never hit planned production rates. Slide, please. So. You can see this problem through this Congressional Budget Office chart. You know, During the 80s, the Air Force bought nearly 200 fighters per year. Then bias fell off a cliff, and we barely refreshed the force for decades. And the Reagan buildup era fighters are closing in on 40 years old, and they're increasingly structurally exhausted. I mean, plus they're obsolete against modern threats. Next slide, please. So the bow wave of this age can clearly be seen in this 2008 CBO assessment. You know, with over half the inventory past it's 50% of its design service life back then. You do the math on this 15 years later, we're at the end of the line on those aircraft. And what this is telling you is that the Cold War fighter force is going to retire, whether we like it or not, because they are spent. And so that's exactly what General Kelly at Air Combat Command is talking about when he says we're burning up the force. You know, there's nothing left. It's going to fall off here.
1: The title says says it all. Like it did on the last slide, you know, just just for just a little bit of a war story. The first tail that I ever flew as an operational fighter pilot was eight six four six four F sixteen flying out of Ramstein, Germany. That was a long time ago. That was in nineteen eighty nine. Guess what? That tail is still out there flying today in one of our guard units. So do you think that, that 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 jet which was a great jet back then in the day do you think that jet is as capable or as maintainable or as effective now as it was back then absolutely not but we have a force a great a, a, a large portion of our force that's that's that old and as just like with a, a used car as fighters age their availability drops and their relevancy drops So availability is is, is how how much of a sortie generation rate you can can operate with the fighters at. That affects us in two ways. If you're at war and the availability rate rate drops, you can't prosecute the campaign the way you want to. And then during peacetime in training, if availability is low, then the pilots aren't getting the training. They're not going to be ready for the next fight. And that's exactly the situation that we found ourselves in. Added to that, is an old jet is just not relevant against the peer competitor, the fights of today. And so America does not use to its Air Force losing in an air campaign, and we don't want that to happen. And so that's why this is an acute problem. When 80% of the Air Force inventory is flying beyond its design service life, it's a significant issue for this country. And it's something that we want to show and highlight and get
3: after this.
2: So here's the deal. You know, on one hand, the circumstances behind the fighter modernization problem, they're complex. But on the other hand, it's really simple. You know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to money. So when you take out the pass-through, which is funding buried in the Air Force budget, but goes to other places in the national security enterprise, the Air Force is resourced well below the other services. And that's robbed of the ability to modernize. It's why it keeps getting smaller and older despite, despite surging demand. You know, and since 2002, the Army has received $1.3 trillion more than the Air Force. The Navy is over the Air Force by $900 billion in the same period of time. In the past year sure, I mentioned, it's enough to buy 400 F-35s every single year. So let's catch up on some more recent history. In 2009, when the F-22 was canceled, the Air Force absorbed significant risk in the fighter portfolio. Secretary of Defense Gates decided to double down on the F-35. He outlined a plan to procure 80 F-35s per year for the Air Force, which would have completed its total buy by 2034, but we never hit the numbers. That's why in 2020, the Air Force only had 272 F-35s, not the 750 it was supposed to have. Resetting the total force takes time, and that's something we don't have, given right now all the global threats and all that. And this just isn't an Air Force prop because the rest of the team, joint team isn't it viable without enough Air Force fighters in the mix. You know, it's a keystone capability and anyone doubting this needs to take a trip to Ukraine right now. We got our sequence here, Aiden. Flip one back there for General Guestella. There you go. So,
1: you know, the Air Force doesn't have to, uh... Telegraph, it's the demands on it. It's being telegraphed by all the combatant commands. We don't have to say we're too small. Everyone else, the joint force, the the combatant commands are, are telling us that we're too small, telling the nation that we're too small. But despite that demand signal, we have dropped capacity across three decades. You know Heather Wilson, the Secretary of the Air Force, says the stark reality is the Air Force is too small to do all that is, the nation's expects of it. When was that quote made? In 2017. That still rings true today, and we haven't turned the corner on this. And so the demand signal is there, but our ability to address it has just not been because of resources. And then you overlay some of the other issues, which is the fighter pilot shortfall. Uh, it makes this even worse and so that's why uh, it's important we really focus and understand this issue slide i think we can go two slides
2: yep exactly
1: so the air force came out with a few years ago of a four plus one fighter plan and it's a good plan obviously top of the list. Number one is the NGAD F-22 combination for the most critical air superiority mission set. That's that's number one. The F-22 has to stay relevant until the, the NGAD can come online and handle that critical area. F-35, like we've talked about, is the fifth generation generation mass. I want to say it's not just mass. It's credible mass against peer threats. It plays a key. It's a cornerstone fighter in our in our, in our uh, 4 plus 1. The F-15E and EX combination is excellent. It's a great fighter. It has a tremendous payload, bomb truck, a missile truck, and it can play to some extent in the high-end fight. Uh, as, a, as a standoff shooter, as well as some of the other missions. And of course, the uh, the most effective overall fighter produced in the 80s and 90s, the F-16, single seat, single engine, single tail, we still get a lot of bang for the buck out of that thing. And it's part of our four plus one strategy. The A-10 has to sunset. It's a great airplane. I've flown the A-10. It's a single mission airplane. And we just don't have the luxury of a boutique single mission fleet uh, where other airplanes can cover down on it. The the other piece I've mentioned is that we need to not only have a four plus one strategy, but we need to sustain the 60 total fighter squadrons up from the 48 that we have today. And so that's kind of the plan that the Air Force has laid out. The question is, are they going to be resourced to get after that plan? Slide.
2: Now, thanks, sir. So this brings us to kind of where we are today. And it's very, very important to understand kind of the modernization path that we're on. And it's really critical to understand the capabilities. And Air Force leaders have been adamant in recent years that they need a version of the aircraft with technology refresh three and block four technologies. So bottom line, it's a massive upgrade of the aircraft. TR3 is a hardware portion of the modernization. It revolves around a new integrated core processor, which is 25 times more powerful. You know, that's like getting a new computer that's way faster. We all know what that's like. While its capability was delayed, the jets coming off the line today have it installed now. And this is incredibly significant because it allows subsequent updates to occur pretty easily because it's mainly about software. And the Air Force does plan on updating about over 300 existing F-35s with this technology, which is obviously not simple, but it's workable. Next slide, please. Okay, the other half of this equation, it's called Block 4. It mainly consists of software with some limited hardware insertions it's not one block of upgrades, but it's a rolling set of capability insertions that's going to occur over the next several years. And bottom line, with the TR3 processor installed in the lead tranche block four software and route, the aircraft is it's really past the key thresholds to ramp production. And so this is really, really important. I can't emphasize this enough because it means any dollar the Hill directs to the F35 program from this point forward for procurement, it's buying a TR3 block four aircraft. Now, it's also why the engine is in the news a lot right now, because TR3 and Block 4 they demand a lot more power and cooling, so an upgrade is important on this front. Slide, please. So if we talk about specific capabilities here, this is complex stuff, but we try to break it down in, into major categories. So first, advanced radar. It's all about sensing the battle space, knowing where and when to engage to best net effects, while also avoiding undue risk. The new radar is more powerful by factor, two. It's more reliable, and it's better target identification, especially in the air-to-ground mode. It also has better standoff electronic attack capabilities, which are key for threat suppression and engaging SAMs at greater range. Now, passive sensing, and again, it all comes down to empowering the pilot with superior knowledge of the battle space. And passive sensing is important because active signals like radar can be detected, tracked, and targeted. Passive sensors gather data, but they're harder to detect because they don't emit energy in the same way. Improved target tracking. You know, this is especially important for mobile threats. It all ties to the electrical optical targeting system and it's used for both surface and air targets day or night. Cockpit display. Look, this thing is all about making sense of increased volume of information, not drowning in data. You just look how the F-35 alone has grown in the years in service. The amount of data flowing into this jet is off the charts. Nothing has ever been on this level. So you have to make sense of it. It's very important. Expanded weapons capabilities. Tier three and block four jets field 16 new weapons, plus several move from external carriage positions to inside the weapons bay, and that's it's a really big deal for maintaining stealth. There's greater internal storage too, so this means types like the Amram increase from four to six in the internal bays. The upgrades also allow the aircraft to become dual capable with the B-61, which is a big deal when it comes to deterrence and improved processing power hit upon it, but look, big deal guys, 25 times faster with with more memory. And so it just makes everything better and allows for significant capability growth. Slide, please. Okay, recommendations. When we looked at at building all of these, we took a broad approach to these to really look at what it'll take to get the Air Force, you know, fighter force healthy again. First, we need to buy airplanes in volume aggressively. We've surrendered three decades, and we can't do this any longer. The older types are done. We either reset fast or the mission is in a death spiral. Second, we need to keep TR3 and Block 4 on schedule. Look, clearly there have been issues here. Most recently, the Air Force has said it won't accept F-35s this year until baseline Block 4 software through testing. So this is going to either be at the end of 2023 or the front end of 2024, but the aircraft are still being produced. And when this is through, they can still be accepted as a group when the software is set. So keeping these efforts on track, it's going to be a total team effort. Contractors, the JPO, the services, Congress, it is very, very crucial, obviously. We also need a four-sizing construct for the Air Force, not just what the service can afford, but it needs to be based off of national security strategy and the COCOM demands. I mean, the Air Force we need and 386 squadrons, that was an attempt, but the Air Force backed off of it because they couldn't afford it. That is the entire point to document the difference between actual requirements and budget. What's in between is risk. And solutions, that can't be implemented by Congress or anybody else if you bury the problem statement. It's okay for that gap to exist. We need to solve it, but you got to recognize it's there. We also need to harness cost-for-effect analysis to build the future fighter force. You know, it comes down to assessing what it costs to execute missions and then choosing the most effective pathways of getting there. You know, think about that F-117 experience I cited versus all those legacy fighters in Desert Storm. The older types cost less per tail, the enterprise expenses way higher. So is the risk, you know, F-117s, they delivered better value. Cost per effect analysis is also how the DOD and Congress can free up funding to pay for fighter modernization. We all know there are a lot of programs out there that cost a lot relative to other solutions. And we also need to look at evolving test and evaluation you know, the whole enterprise there. I'm not talking about cutting corners or failing to hold people accountable. What I mean is moving at the speed of relevancy. We need to evolve from an industrial age set of practices to ones relevant for the information age. We also need more test capacity and move assessments and timelines that match the threat. Slide.
1: Continuing with the recommendations, America needs in an aerospace industrial base that's commensurate with the demands on on our air force. We need need the technological advantage in the air, in the aircraft, in the systems that we build to give our air crews the edge in the battle. We also need sufficient capacity to deal with the threats that are going on around the globe, because even the best fighter in the world can only be in one place at one time. It all is underpinned by an industrial, a healthy industrial uh, base. We also have to it abandoned the invest, the divest to invest strategy. They've done that. They have hemorrhaged half of the fighter force structure that we had in the 90s, and we've hit rock bottom. There's no more to go there. Why? Because of the demand signals on the existing force are excessive. What's going to happen left unchecked is we're going to drive the force into the ground. Because if the if we, we either let the demand signal go unsatisfied, we tell COCOMs, guess what? You're not getting air power. Or... We drive our air force into the ground. We drive our air crews, our maintainers. We don't give them any time to reset or train or or, or prepare for a future fight. So we're we're at the bottom of capacity wise right now. So this is going to require investment alone to get through this. We also have to take care of the number one weapon system. The number one weapon system are those airmen out there that fly and fix jets. They we have to invest in those. We have a, the air force has admired. Uh, the 2000 pilot shortfall for years now and done little about it. We've also have a very important uh, maintenance enterprise, all the technicians out there. We have to recruit those young men and women after, and we have to retain those young men and women to, to fix these aircraft, especially the old ones. And so it's a, it's a critical area for the Air Force. The, we, we are a total force Air Force. We are active, we are guard, and we are reserved. That is our construct, and it's important that we modernize all of those components concurrently. And then lastly, we have to scale production for increased allied bias. The Ukrainian conflict definitely turned on the light bulb for a lot of the NATO countries, and they are buying F-35s and they're buying other assets to make them prepared against the Russian aggression. We have to ensure that our industrial base can answer that demand. By the way, f thirty five. Air, is a fifth gen aircraft it also needs fifth gen munitions to be effective and we have to have the production to be able to handle those slide so we've identified the demand pretty clearly as a team here uh, we've identified the problem the fighter force structure and the fact that it's going to collapse if it's if it's left unchecked 72 a year is the minimum new fighters the Air Force needs to buy. And and by the way, it can't be just a year or two this happens. This has to be sustained. The number really should be higher. Additionally, the F-35 though is, remember, that is the cornerstone of all of this. And the F-35 has to be modernized to be relevant to be relevant in the the fight that it's gonna face. It's a key piece and it also has to be modernized. You know, we, we are in a new era for air power where we are out of the land-centric campaigns of the Middle East in the last 20 years, and it's an era of air and space power relevance that we haven't been in in a long time. We have to realize this, we have to realize the state of the Air Force, and we have to get after the investments, especially in the fighter fleet. Thank you.
0: Okay, well, uh, Gus and Doug, uh, awesome work. Um, Thanks so much for what you put into um, making this paper a reality. Now, Cobra, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to share some of your perspectives before we jump into questions. So um, you've got the stick.
4: Okay, thanks, uh, General Deptula. And uh, again, appreciate the opportunity to be with everybody today. Uh, First, hats off to uh, the team for pulling the paper and the report together. Um, I I think it's critically important that we remind ourselves of the facts. This is not conjecture. This is, you know, not uh, based on somebody's gut feeling these are the facts over the course of time that are critically important to remind ourselves, not only how we got here, but some of the decisions that led to it. So I think as with any problem, first is we've got to acknowledge across the department that we've got a problem here and uh, that uh, we can no longer admire it. And as uh, the report rightly points out, uh, we've got to make some tough decisions. And I think that starts with, um, you know, the Russian example with respect to what happened, um, in terms of their inability to gain air superiority, um, that is, should be a reminder for all of us that that's job one for the joint force, job one for the joint force. And, uh, to be able to do that, it requires the appropriate capacity and capabilities as rightly pointed out in the report, moving forward on block four is incredibly important. And I put that in the category of putting the right capability in our daughters and our sons to be able to go execute that the, the missions that we are asking them to deliver on. Further, as you look broadly across uh, the joint force requirements when it comes to plans, whether that be deterrent plans or those required to execute operations, it is clear that we do not have the capacity required to meet those requirements. And we can get into that more as we go through this, but acknowledging that up front is going to require across the department tough decisions and tough decisions means getting back into the budget and relooking the way that those dollars are allocated across the joint force. And I would argue, uh, we no longer have time uh, to view those through the lens of hey we're going to build. Uh, in a longer period of time, because we know that we have the availability of uh, time on our favor. Time is not on our favor. And uh, I think uh, collectively, uh, the leaders across the force understand that. So now we got to make those tough decisions. So uh, no longer uh, available to uh, think our way through this, we've got to put the money in the right place and move out on the production and capabilities that you all address here. So thanks for the chance to be
0: on the net with y'all. Hey, thanks very much for that, uh, Cobra. Let's jump into a couple of questions. In uh, at both your and Gus's past jobs, you both had to juggle fighter capacity challenges. Gus, you were responsible for helping meet requests for Air Force fighters in Cobra. You were a user in your combat command roles. Um, how about helping us in the audience understand the current capacity challenges from each of these perspectives? Cobra, start us off with the demand side of the equation and, and then we'll hand it over to Gus.
4: Yeah, thanks. As uh, we highlighted, uh, I think it's, it's first important to remember the adversary gets a vote, right? So, you know, we can have a plan and as uh, all of us uh, on the net here have lived, uh, you're going to make a plan and then you're going to have to react to how the adversary um, uh, delivers in the environment and so i can share with you both from the ascent perspective where as uh, many of us remember back in the 2016-2018 timeframe, we had russians flying we had syrians iranians civilian aircraft and uh the demand signal uh frankly Uh, for the capabilities that I needed were challenging as Gus will (laughs) highlight from the supply perspective and that I had to be really thoughtful about uh, the numbers and types of capabilities I needed. Largely in in, uh, General Tool, I put this in the category of how we best manage risk for the joint force and for our airmen that were being asked to deploy those missions. So that demand signal never really dropped. I mean, I I can tell you that I had to continually go back to uh, the leadership in the Air Force and say, hey, here's the scenario. I I understand this uh, this is part of the problem that the Air Force is facing, but from the position that I sat in terms of what I needed to deliver to the Joint Force Commander, that was, those were the capabilities I needed to have. Now, the same thing very much applied uh, as I got to safety and looked at what we had in theater from a deterrent perspective, what the plans call for, and then the timelines associated with delivering those capabilities relative to the plan. And as uh, we can all imagine, there is risk associated with that in terms of what did we expect for indications of warning? What were those timelines gonna uh, allow us to do? And then at the end of the day, Um, has reviewed the Russian activity, uh, I can tell you the first capability on my list that I wanted was F-35s to drive down the risk to the combatant command and broadly to the nation, probably more importantly, such that we didn't uh, become um, caught in a situation where we instigated the fight. So that demand signal has not changed and I would argue is not going to change for the foreseeable future.
1: So, the Cobra Shack, by the way, uh, you know, from my perspective, I, the way I like to present to the audience a little bit is thinking about risk to mission versus risk to force. So, in other words, are you going to put at risk the objectives of the combatant commanders of the aspirations of our nation, or are you going to put at risk and break the force that we have? And that's the tension that exists because the Air Force is so small. So, right now, as General Harigian stated, there's demands from UCOM. There's demands from Indo-PACOM, Admiral Aquilino has demands. There's demands from CENTCOM still. There's demands from Homeland Defense, from uh, General Van Herc. That is, those demands represent, if they're not satisfied, represent risk to the mission. So what happens a lot of times in the tank in the Pentagon is they go, oh, combatant commander, he puts forward a requirement for fighters. They look at the Air Force and go, Air Force, fulfill it. They don't ever look at the combatant commander and say, no, that's not really a valid requirement. They tell the Air Force, to fulfill the requirement, which has driven risk to the force. Because what happens is you burn up the force. The force is either deployed, either they're resetting or they're on deck to go. And so you'll drive the deploy to dwell ratio into the ground, you'll burn out your airmen, you'll burn out the pilots, the pilots, you'll burn out the air crews and you're burning out the jets. But there's one more part to risk to force. If all you do is deploy to satisfy combatant command needs, You're never home long enough to really train to the high end fight. That training requires good exercises. Let's think of a red flag. It requires high end simulation events. It requires what we call white space to get after the readiness that you need for the high end fight. And oh, by the way, you have to have the flying hours. The aircrew have to get out there and be able to fly. So all of those things that I just said on on the force side, are in bad in a bad condition and so when you have insatiable demand that the pentagon tends to answer and, and fulfills it all it does is deplete the air force it depletes it in the short term which is going to cause a catastrophe in the long term
0: ah oh, thanks very much for that uh, gus and both of you uh, cobra back to you you were the air commander during operation inherent resolve when we were conducting combat operations um At the same time, the Russian forces were also engaged in Syria. Can you walk us why fifth gen technology um, is so important?
4: Yeah, thanks for that. uh, First thing that uh, I think was really helpful, and and I don't mean this in a a flippant way, but uh, having had the opportunity to actually fly F-22s and then see how we were operating them in combat, gave me a a upfront view of how we were able to make the joint force better. And and when I say that, uh, we had significant numbers of troops on the ground. Uh, We had uh, both uh, Naval capabilities supporting us. And at the same time, we had a myriad of uh, enablers from um, MQ-9s to AWACS, et cetera, et cetera. And so as you view the capabilities that 5th Gen brings to, brings to the fight, what I saw up close and personal was the ability to share the information that was being fused in the airplane and then get that uh, across the team, which fundamentally helped drive down the risk. When you think about, um, if, if you all will remember, and I'll try to kind of describe this, the Middle Euphrates River Valley, many of us have flown over the top of that. And we had uh, the Russians flying to the West, we were on the East and we were trying to ensure that we could protect our force. And we were operating under self-defense rules of engagement. The very best capability to number one, deter the Russians Russians, was a fifth gen. And then second, to ensure we made smart decisions with respect to how we ran intercepts, how we ensured we were in the proper position to defend our force was a fifth gen capability. And I would tell you the same thing was applicable to me and you, safety. When, as I highlighted just a little bit early, you think about uh, where the Russians were flying down the Belarus border, just outside Poland, and we had forces that were, as you can imagine, leaning forward, ready to defend the, the uh, eastern flank, and we had to make sure everybody on the eastern flank had high situational awareness so that. The right decisions were made to defend uh, NATO if required, and that was delivered by fifth-gen airplane.
0: Very good, uh, Gus. I want to follow up on the same thing with you. Put your air component commander hat on, uh, and tell us why the F-35 is such a fundamentally unique
1: asset. You know, uh, Cobra hit you know hit the nail on the head. You know. You know, Doug in, in, in on the slide that he briefed uh, talked very clearly about the individual attributes that TR three Block four provide the F thirty five, the improvements that it gives the F thirty five. So when you put on the air commander, uh, air component commander hat, you think about what do those improvements do at the campaign level? You know, really an F thirty five is a very lethal and survivable platform as it is today and it'll, it'll be even more lethal and more survivable with the TR3 block four upgrades realized. And so when you put it across the campaign level, that means you can prosecute air targets at a much higher and more successful rate, and you can af- get after air to surface targets, such as mobile SAM systems, uh, mobile missile launchers, the things that can shoot back at us. That's what the F-35 with those modifications can 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 prosecute at a higher rate. You don't wanna just win the first merge. You want to win all the merges that are going to happen in a big campaign. And that only happens if you have a credible fifth gen fighter that's modernized to give us that technological edge across the, broad, uh, the broader airspace. Um, thanks, Gus. Now, look,
0: we hit upon it in the report, but I want to emphasize to people that while aircraft are important, we also need to take care of the entire enterprise. And that means pilots, maintainers, the depots, and more. Um, all of that's under tremendous stress, given the, <clears throat> excuse me, undersized state of the current fighter force. How about a couple minutes on describing the importance of all of these elements?
1: You know, the, 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 what you're describing there, uh, Zatar, those those are the human Weapon system, the number one weapon system, even more valuable than the F 35 and F 22 and everything else, are the human weapon systems, those young men and women that fly and fix those airplanes. The Air Force has a 2000 pilot shortfall they've had for a number of years now and it's not getting better they have not sufficiently addressed that shortfall they cut too many production engines pilot training bases and so they're living with a pilot shortfall all the all the production engines right now are operating right at their red line and they're barely staying afloat in terms of pilot production that's going to be a bigger 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 and bigger problem as we go into the future when airlines start hiring and people start getting done with their commitments separately are the folks that, fl- that fix those aircraft, the, the maintainers, the sustainers on those things. They're a national treasure. They're some of the most, they're some of the smartest most technically savvy airmen that we recruit into the Air Force, and we have to be able to train them. We can't drive them into the ground with continuous deployments. We have to give them the tools and the opportunity to succeed. And all by the way, with that incredible talent, it really would be good to put that talent against a new aircraft, which is easier to fix, than having them fix something that's 40 years old. And so the investment, both on the pilot side and on the on the maintainer side has to be there, which is additive to these other requirements. It's additive to ensure that the, the fifth and sixth gen fleet that we want to build towards is actually flyable, It's doable. And so that's an important aspect for us as to consider going forward.
0: Doug, what's your take on Congress's perspective on this issue? Um, is the message getting through about the scale of the challenge the military faces with respect to the Air Force fighter capacity deficit?
2: Yeah, obviously we've been talking about this for years. And what happened at Kadena this last fall, I think was a huge wake-up call, when those F-15s were retired and nothing was there to directly backfill them. And we're just doing a rotational presence, as General Guastella talked about, that is burning out people and airframes. And you look at where they're pulling some of those airframes from, I mean, it's Europe. How do you even make that choice with Ukraine going on right now? And yet we have to and so if you look at report language just came through with both the hask and the sask with markup over this last uh, week or so there is direct attention focused on this i think there's also an increasing voice with the air guard coming online saying that look kadina just happened but the air guard units are the next one that are going to be in line here and, and so we've got to get after this there's a challenge on, that's why we had the, the recommendation on industrial-based capacity. We have to have the ability to surge, to build at higher rates. And when you factor the budget caps that just went in, that is gonna be very, very difficult. And so if we have to solve this out of high, DOD has to get really serious about that cost-per-effect assessment, where you're gonna get biggest bang for the buck. And there are certain keystone capabilities in the entire DOD force. that if you do not have that, nothing else works. Fighters are one of those things. Nothing else works, land, sea, space, whatever, if you cannot control the sky and execute the other missions. I think they get
0: that. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate that. Now, um, back to uh, Cobra and uh, Gus. Uh, Fighters, all three of us grew up flying or still on Air Force ramps today. Um, I hesitate to say it, but in my case, I first climbed into an F-15 cockpit over 45 years ago. And uh, it might sound interesting from a sentimental perspective, but we're seeing the effects of an aging fighter inventory that's shrunk significantly. How about talking us through some of the challenges you're seeing when it comes to trying to meet operational demands with an aging fighter force? Cobra,
4: you go first. Okay, thanks. Um, First, I just want to go back to what Gus uh, brought up. And, you know, uh, my hat's off to our maintainers and, you know, our Airmen that are taking care of these jets and flying these jets, they, they continue to figure out innovative ways to try to get the job done. So I, I think it's important that we recognize that. But from a uh, planning and execution perspective, these factors clearly play into how uh, combatant command and air component leaders are developing the plans, not only to deter but of course, for the uh, the larger operations, so should those be required? So as we look at the indication and warning timelines, uh, what we would expect to get at particular timelines, and then the sorting generation uh, assumptions, those all factored into the age of the based on the age of the fleet, and uh, we all had to acknowledge the fact that uh, you know what were going to be the requirements we want to have. And what we're actually really going to have and uh, that's a key driver not only from that uh, sort of generation and mission effectiveness perspective but also has uh, is highlighted in the report is what's the mix of capabilities and uh, i will share with you that uh, i think all of us had to take a really hard look at uh, where we were going to buy risks not only from a timeline perspective then if there was a sustained fight. Uh, you know what that was really going to look like, and those are several of the factors that then drove decisions with respect to uh, not only how we uh, built the plan, but how we thought execution would play out, which I think in any AOR also drives a further discussion on reliance on allies to be part of the plan and what we were going to get out of them, which we'll talk to later.
1: guys. Yeah, Kilbert, spot on, you know, just just to compliment that just a little bit. And that is the aging fleet, like we talked about before, is more costly. And it's also reflects in a lower sortie generation rate, a lower flying rate. We don't fly as much. When I go visit Shaw Air Force Base, where I used to be the wing commander, they're, they're barely staying mission ready compared to the way we were, you know, a decade ago. When I go to the Triple Nickel in Aviano, Italy, great fighter squadron but they're barely capable to, to maintain the sortie rates that we did 10 years ago. They're flying the same iron, by the way. 10, the, the, the iron's just older, and as a result, it's not flying at the same rates. So the readiness of our aircrew is starting to diminish. Yes, we have simulators. But simulators, and very important, by the way, and they're very good, but they're not sufficient to replace flying hours. There was a statistic I saw when I was in the Pentagon that our fifth-gen pilots are actually flying, or F-22 guys are flying fewer sorties per month than the Chinese pilots, which is unthinkable for Americans. Because our training, our edge that we've always had, even when our systems are near parity with each other, with another adversary like the Russians, we always have had a training edge. That is starting to diminish now. And so that is why I'm significantly concerned about this aging fleet.
0: Yeah, that's great. I'll just chime in there because it recalls a a comment that General Jumper used to make when he was chief. And that was, it's all about training. If you put our pilots in their aircraft and their pilots in our aircraft, we'll still beat them uh but that is becoming less and less the fact today just simply because um readiness is declining um uh, as you described on cost doug it's hard to read an article today without seeing uh, f-35 and the term expensive in the same sentence um what's your take on that
2: okay first off big picture view what's the cost of losing you know do you like ukraine right now do you want that to be your backyard you're going to put your kid in a jet and send them into harm's way you want them in one of these 35 year old fighters or do you want them in something that's stealthy and information dominant and is going to get them back the pilot enterprise is so tight right now that we do not have the ability to sustain any attrition so we've got to buy down that risk as much as possible that is why fifth gen is essential so if you look at these enterprise costs and all that again that f-117 example what was more expensive there it was the older stuff theoretically it was cheaper by tail but guess what If you look at where the f-35 is right now it's actually cheaper than a lot of the fourth gen iron that's being produced in fact I did the math writing the support the f-35 if you factor for inflation it's cheaper than what f-15 c's and d's were when we bought those now there's a problem on the sustainment front the air force indexed the f-35 at the same sustainment dollars as F-16s. That was a really dumb assumption, but it's something they drove into the Excel spreadsheets and are still trying to get to hold it to. It is not an F-16. It'll never be an F-16. It is a vastly more capable aircraft with a lot more systems on it. Now, the costs are coming down. That's good. We needed to have them come down further. But fundamentally, this is a, a radically more capable jet. Numbers are actually pretty good. but the bigger picture is what is losing look like and it's this is a national security problem because the army the navy the space force marine corps nothing else works without this yeah
0: i i I don't think any of us could have given a better answer than that doug so thanks very much for that and uh, gentlemen i tell you what i want to leave some time for audience questions and answers so um we'll wrap it up for this segment thanks very much for your your comments Um, For the rest of you, you all know the drill by now, Um, I'll call on you if you raise your hand uh, on the using the raise hand function, uh, then unmute your mic and uh, please state your name and affiliation uh, before asking your question. Um, And we do have uh, some questions already using the Q&A function, um, so please feel free uh, to use that. So um, I think we'll kick this off by calling first on John
3: Turpak. John, go ahead. Uh, good morning thanks very much uh two questions uh and and if everybody could please chime in uh for better or worse congress is going to view this as a zero-sum game so if you could triage uh the top three or four things out of all the asks you've got on this this report and there are a lot of them uh where what do you put up at the top is it ngad is it more f-35s uh is it more flying hours? Where I, I know you have to choose between your children here, but uh, uh, give us a triage on this. And second of all, uh, the AETP engine for the F thirty five could cost you know several tens of billions of dollars to develop and field. Would you rather have that, or would you have rather have more F thirty five squadrons, or more money for NGAD? or or how would how would you make those choices? Thank you.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to jump in there first, John, and answer your first question. And the answer to your first question is to stop committing, um, you know, (laughs) uh, self-destruction inside the Air Force budget. Your question presumes that you only find trade space inside the Air Force budget. And for too long now, I said that right up front. Let me say it again. For 31 years in a row, the Air Force has been funded less than the Army and the Navy. I don't, and $1.3 trillion more than the Air Force in the 20 years is what, uh, following 9-11, is what the Army got. Now, I'm not besmirching the Army getting those funds. An average of $66 billion a year more than the Air Force, okay? But we're no longer in Iraq or Afghanistan. Part of the reason the Air Force is the oldest and the smallest and the least ready in its entire history is because of that diversion of funds out of the Air Force um, into the Army. Like I said, fine, they were the preponderance of forces, Iraq or Afghanistan, we're not there anymore. The Department of Defense needs to look across the services back to the cost and use cost per effect as a measure of merit. To determine how to optimize the use of the funds that it does have, because realistically, this Congress um, and administration are not going to provide additional resources for defense. As a matter of fact, with the budget caps a, and including inflation, we're actually going to—they re- are actually going to reduce um, the amount of money coming to the Department of Defense. Um, so, um, there's my answer to that one. You know, why in God's name are we spending billions of dollars on? surface-to-surface hypersonic weapons that cost 55 to $60 million a shot. That's almost, you know, that's a, that's an, F-6, an F-35 and a half per shot. And those hypersonic surface-to-surface missiles, which by the way, will never be used because they have to be deployed. No country is gonna base them. And if you're gonna move them during war, there's no lift available to move them. It's those kinds of decisions that need to be made. And the Department of Defense leadership has to stop this go along to get along, everybody hug each other and let everyone spend the money that is allocated to their particular service. So there's the answer to your first question. I'll let Doug answer your second question.
2: It's clear the aircraft obviously needs more power and cooling. We cannot trade tails for it though. The force cannot get smaller, but we also need a holistic solution that really addresses the engine thing long term. There are obviously two pathways. I'm going to leave it to the experts on that. But we need to ensure that we're also taking you know, the industrial base long term. There are a lot of variables here. It's very complex.
3: I wonder if I could get uh, General Harrigian and General Gostella to talk about the triage issue also. John, I, I could
1: pitch in first cover if that's OK. You know, John, your question, the first question, general, the tool, I thought I answered it very, very well. I used to be a programmer in the Air Force, okay? And I'm, I'm sympathetic to the people that have to build the the palm that lay in the money for everything you just asked about. And I would say the Air Force does a perfect job of laying in the money that it gets, There's not a better way to lay, there isn't some fat part of the Air Force with all this money. They're not building golf courses somewhere and neglecting the fighter force structure because of that. Every part of the Air Force has been, been, every rock has been turned over. Everything has been looked at to the point where if you think about it though, the Air Force in, in, in conjunction with the problems we highlighted here, we're also trying to modernize not one, but two legs of the triad, which is tremendous cost and, but but the foundation of our, our deterrent is in the Air Force, not to mention the NC three part of it. And there's a lot of other parts. There's the mobility fleet, the the, the, the conventional bomber fleet. There's a lot of things that are that are uh, that are underfunded. The pilot production. So all of those things are reflect one important overall narrative that the Air Force is underfunded as a department within the Department of Defense. And the problem is is they've been unable to convince the decision makers of how bad this is. And that's why we wanna be able to telegraph this so that people get this message and understand it.
4: Yeah, hey, thanks, Gus. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Although I I will pile on John just to, you know, uh, reinforce the discussion inside the Air Force that did a lot of soul searching on how we best get after uh, the fighter force uh, challenges that we have, the crisis for lack of a better term. And uh, you can be sure you've seen it in General Kelly's uh, description of what we need. Um, And and I will reinforce Gus's point in that we pushed hard to get transparency on where the money was going inside the Air Force, i.e. break it up, just, we need to look outside just the fighter portfolio because I think much like uh, Joan de Tulip points out, even inside the Air Force, we would kind of look inside the fighter money and see where we could move it on, around. And what Gus is saying is like, hey, we need to open the Aperture and look across the entire Air Force. And you start doing that. And based on sustainment and a lot of these big bills, we go that there's no there's no other money there which drives you back to the department level to go, okay, you got to help us fix this. And, and, and that includes going back to Congress. So that's where the lift needs to happen, in my opinion.
3: Okay, thank you very much.
4: Okay, let's uh, uh, open up the
0: mic to uh, um, William uh, Fosnia.
5: Good morning, General Deptula. we've met a number of times. And uh, I go by Bill, but I use William here. So listen, first I want to make a statement. I'm not as smart as you guys, and I didn't get to fly planes. I was not a maintainer. I was a ground crew. I worked on F-4s and 105s. My systems were autopilot, and they were grounding systems. I loved the plane, and I loved, I knew the pilots, and when you guys went up, I know you guys were probably still in diapers, but when your predecessors went up, I went with you, heart and soul. I knew when I signed off on that plane, it was ready to fly. Stop calling me a maintainer. Call me your ground crew. I was proud of that in 1968 through 1972. You know, I hear you, uh, the stuff you talk about, I'm learning. I'm on these calls because I want to learn. I'm 75 years old and I had a retired general, not General Deptula, uh, ask me one time, why do you come to the Mitchell Institute, Air and Space Symposium, et cetera? Because I want to learn and I'm learning from you guys. So I thank you, for that. I thank you. But you, you got to incorporate the, uh, the people that maintain, ground crews, repair, whether it's a jet engine, airframe, or an autopilot system, you got to get them involved. You know, you're all retired generals and high level civilians, I respect all of you. Get the guys who served, you know, here's the one other point I'll make. No questions, I know I'm talking. When I talk to people and I give presentations on the Air Force in Vietnam, the veterans groups and civilians and in schools, I tell them we saved lives. That 55,000 plus number would have been much higher if it wasn't the Air Force dropping napalm, putting up gunships at night to protect the uh, grunts on the ground. And you know what? Most of them come up to me and say, thank you. We appreciate what you did. I had one guy about six months ago say, we were scared, I won't use the next word, until your gunship came up at night and put down flares and protected us. And I'm talking about guys with purple hearts, et cetera. Um, hey, so Bill, point- yes, sir. Bill, thanks very much. Look, we, got, right.
0: we got the point. Um, yep. we, we all love our ground crews Um, And the as we talked about in our in the questions. um, uh, No one has higher respect for the approach that this is not just about the people that fly the planes and the ground crews are uh, just as if not more so important to the entire enterprise working. So thanks very much um, for your service and your commentary. And uh, we're gonna move on to uh, a last question here because we're running out of time. Um, This is from uh, Bill Jones uh, and it's to Lieutenant General Gustella. Gus, if possible, please elaborate on recommendation number nine, which states, and I'll summarize this because it's long, but the Air Force is presently sized in such a way that there's no operational reserve um the role that was traditionally filled by the air national guard and the air force reserve um because all of our guard and reserve units are currently required to meet our strategy demands based on the insatiable combatant commander's appetite for air power um, it seems the air force is sized in a way that there's no strategic reserve because the guard and the reserve are currently required to meet ongoing combatant command
1: operational uh, demands Well, you're exactly right, and uh, Doug said it in his portion of the briefing. We need the Department of Defense needs a force sizing construct, which says this is the global demand. This is how big the Air Force needs to be to, 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 to realize that demand, and we need to show that to Congress. Even though the funding may not generate that size of the force that we get, we still should show the objective values of how many jets, how many fighter squadrons, how many bombers, how many tankers we need to, to realize the ambitions of the national defense strategy. And so to your point, you're absolutely right. The, the, the four, we have 48 fighter squadrons now, total four squadrons. They are, we're using the reserves, we're using our guard units, we're using them to the maximum rate that we can without an involuntary mobilization. And so all of these things come together to to advertise our our significant issue, but we need to telegraph this, we need a force sizing construct. Okay, thanks
0: very much. Um, One more real quick answer um, from someone we all know well, and that's uh, Walt Buchanan. Who asks, is it time to disband the JPO and let the services manage their own F-35 fleets? Um, Buck, absolutely. The answer is yes. That's a position the Mitchell Institute has backed for several years now. And in fact, uh, the JPO is on target to be disbanded. Not soon enough. It was over a five-year period. So it'll go away shortly. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to end of this rollout. Uh, Gus and Doug, thanks so much again for an outstanding research effort. And uh, Cobra, as always, thanks for adding your valuable uh, um, insights. Uh, By the way, to all the the papers now available on our website at mitchelaerospacepower.org. So please go and check it out. And to our audience, from all of us here at the Mitchell
2: Institute, have a great air and space power kind of day out here.